This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. Welcome to On the Cover, a weekly Mad Splainers feature. I'm Abby Becker, local government reporter for the Capital Times, and this week I'm talking to reporter, podcast producer, and Mad Splainers co-host Natalie Yar about her latest cover story. Earlier this summer, an incident in Monona made headlines when a neighbor called police on a black man for being suspicious. When, as he explained at gunpoint and in handcuffs, he had permission to be in the house. Incidents like these are unfortunately all too common. With police killings in the news this summer, much attention has been focused on reforming police departments and changing police officers' attitudes, and with less attention paid to the role individuals and their biases play in calling the police. Today, Natalie and I are discussing a pervasive phenomenon called profiling by proxy and how police officers and neighborhoods in Madison are dealing with it. Natalie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Abby. So what happened in Monona, and how is it an example of profiling by proxy? Yeah, so folks might have heard about this incident. This was the morning of June 2nd, and Keontae Furge, uh, who was a 2016 graduate and former football player from Monona Grove High School, he was making a phone call from the front porch of a house in Monona, and a neighbor saw him and called the police. Uh, The house belonged to Keontae's former coach's mother, who'd passed away, and the coach had invited Keontae's former teammate, Torin Young, to stay at the house for a couple months with his girlfriend and baby. And Keontae had come to stay with Torin, but at least one of the neighbors didn't know that. She saw Keontae on the porch and called the police to report what she called suspicious activity, saying she thought the house was supposed to be empty. The officers who showed up were wearing body cameras, and those cameras showed that they uh, arrived and found the door unlocked. And when they opened the door, they could hear a voice in another room. So they called out, waited for backup, and then walked into the living room with guns drawn. And they pointed their guns down the hallway. Police department, come out with your hands up. Come out with your hands up. In the body cam video, you can see Keontae step into view a few moments later. His hands are up. Keep walking. This is me. But he's clearly confused about what's going on. You don't live here. My coach's house, Coach Rundle. Okay. You let me and Torrance stay here. You can call him Axel. Okay. Go ahead and just, for right now, just turn around. Put your hands behind your back. Is it Keontae? Keontae starts telling the officers that this is his old coach's house and that he's allowed to be there. And one of the officers even recognizes Keontae from when he used to be a school police officer at that high school. But despite Keontae's explanation and the officer recognizing him, they still handcuff him. And they explain that a neighbor thought that he wasn't supposed to be there. So this is the reason why you're here. Someone called because they... I know, because I'm a black man and it's that lady right there, even though she waved at me. uh, They release him about a minute later after another officer comes in to say that a different neighbor had confirmed Keontae's story. But the incident generated outrage. The body cam footage circulated online. The police chief apologized to Keontae. And the city has now hired outside experts to investigate the incident, to recommend training plans for the department and to conduct community conversations about these issues. 
But there's a specific moment in the video that I think deserves some attention. And that's that before the officers leave, one of them asks Keontae what his car looks like. So I'll let them know what vehicle so they know what vehicle is going to be here and stuff. Okay. So this crap doesn't happen again because I don't want to put you through it again. And tells him that they're going to go and tell the other neighbors that he's staying there so that something like this won't happen again. I think that's really telling because it gets at just how common this phenomenon is of people calling the police to report people of color and especially black people for doing things that are legal and that probably wouldn't rouse suspicion if they were white. You know, these cases are documented across the country for years. People, often white people, uh, have called police on black people who are doing all sorts of everyday things, whether it's arguing on a basketball court, sitting in their cars, walking through a neighborhood, or in the case of the Amy Cooper video that a lot of people probably saw online, this Central Park video from May, where she called the police because a black man was telling her to put her dog on a leash. Uh, it happens to black college students, like a Yale student who fell asleep in her dorm, and even to black politicians who've had the police called on them when they were doing door-to-door -door outreach to voters. But in many cases, police policy requires that police officers go out whether or not they think there's really a concern. So that's kind of the heart of this issue, which the people who study or train officers about this phenomenon, they call it profiling by proxy because it's triggered by the implicit or explicit biases of the callers and not of officers. And I thought that was very interesting, and that's why I want to dig into this issue. Because with the ongoing protest movement, we've been hearing about changes to policing, but we haven't been hearing as much about uh, the callers who trigger the police to come in the first place and how they play a role in deciding who gets policed. So that incident was in Monona. I'm curious, how does the Madison Police Department handle calls for suspicious activity? Yeah, so the Madison Police Department, uh, I think this is common for many departments across the country, has a policy requiring that officers respond to all calls, period. Though they do prioritize the calls, and they give faster and more thorough responses to the calls that are coded as more serious. So suspicious person calls, along with reports of suspicious vehicles, and a type of calls coded as check person, which 911 center staff told me is kind of interchangeable with suspicious person calls. These are all considered routine calls that don't necessarily require an immediate response. But of course, if the response is delayed long enough, the person in question may not be around when officers show up. But I took a look at data that the Madison Police Department provided me, and in 2019, Madison police responded to more than 95% of all of these types of calls. Um, what that response looks like can vary. So it might be that an officer shows up and questions the person. It might mean that they watch them from a police car and kind of try to decide whether there's something to worry about or not. And it, it might mean just driving through the neighborhood to look for whether anything's amiss. Police told me that the response can depend in part on things like what what else they know about the neighborhood, like whether it's been recently experiencing car thefts or burglaries. When I talked to Captain Jennifer Kruger-Favor, who oversees training for Madison police, she emphasized that officers don't know what to expect when they're called, that a suspicious person call could mean kind of anything from you know, some kids playing on their bikes to a person waving a gun around. And so she said that they just try to assess things once they get to the scene and adjust their response appropriately. 
But when I talked to Officer Lore Vang, who's part of the community outreach team and also helps train new police recruits, he said that these kinds of situations tend to put officers in a bind and can undermine the department's efforts to build trust. So he talked about when he'd get calls in his first year as an officer um, and he'd have to go check out kids, you know, kids of color, often black kids who were reported for being suspicious and he'd have to go and engage with them um, and that he didn't feel like there were any real good options for what he could do. You're stuck because then you sit there and you want to do the right thing. You want to honor that person who called because maybe there was a genuine concern. So then you sit there and try to observe any inklings of criminal behavior from these young boys. So you're that cop that's sitting there watching for them to do something, right? That's an option. Or you go and you ask the kids, you make contact and ask them what they're doing there. Um, that's an option. Um, or you try to make a friendly contact, be officer friendly, and just try to make a positive, hey, how you doing, kid, a, a, a contact, which when you leave that scene, you know those kids are going to say, yeah, we know why we got contact. Mm-hmm. Even though that officer was nice and gave me a thumbs up, we know why he was talking to us. Though officers respond to incidents, another agency, Dane County's 911 Center, receives the calls. What role do operators potentially play in preventing profiling by proxy? Yeah. So in most parts of Dane County, both the 911 calls and other calls to the police go through the 911 center for the county. And here in Dane County, and I, th- I think this is true in much of the country, operators are trained to ask various questions, you know, take notes on the responses, code the incident based on a list of you know, standard types of incidents, and pass that information to a dispatcher. But they aren't doing any sort of screening uh, or filtering to determine which calls deserve a response. They just that's not considered to be part of their job. There are some exceptions, like if they're quite sure that this is a pocket dial or if they can hear kids you know, laughing in the background and they think it's a prank. So they might ask the caller kind of what the person in question has done that's raised their suspicions. Uh, and they might pass that information along to the dispatcher. But they're still passing along all these calls, and Madison police will still respond. So there are some public policy experts who want to see something different, who say that 911 operators ought to do more to prevent profiling by proxy. So, for example, Jessica Giluli, a postdoctoral researcher at the policing project at NYU School of Law, used to work as a 911 operator herself, and she argues that 911 center staff ought to get uh, implicit bias training and then be trained to ask callers more about the basis of their suspicions and even to explain to callers why just looking like you don't belong in a neighborhood is not actually a police issue. So she'd like to see operators a lot more involved in preventing this. But understandably, operators are hesitant about taking on that kind of responsibility, which could come with liability as well. I talked to Paul Logan. He's the operations manager at Dane County's 911 Center. And he talked about how their job's just to be the middleman, you know, to pass along the calls. But he did say that the 911 center several years ago uh, started doing implicit bias training for all new staff. And he thought the center should potentially expand its implicit bias and cultural competency training to be ongoing for all staff. And he thought they should maybe even work with law enforcement on ways of reducing these unnecessary calls. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. 
Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. So is reform happening on this issue? And what are some potential challenges in enacting change? Yeah, we've seen new legislation approved in a few different states, including Oregon, New York, California, um, that would create penalties for racially motivated police calls. In Wisconsin, Representative Sheila Stubbs has proposed a bill along with two Milwaukee colleagues, Representative David Bowen and Representative Latanya Johnson. They're notably all black lawmakers. Uh, This bill would allow people who've been the subject of police calls that are intended to unlawfully discriminate to sue for $250. Now, the bill could probably only address the most obvious cases, like when a caller uses racial slurs or has a known history of calling the police on people of color. But former Madison Police Chief Noble Ray said he thinks that's probably still enough to change people's behavior. Symbolically? It will have an impact. It will have a rippling effect. And it will have a rippling effect because of this, is that we we don't think about the impact that the community has on law enforcement in terms of them responding. Now, the bill didn't get a hearing in the Republican-controlled legislature earlier this year. Um, It was included in a package of legislation targeting policing changes earlier this summer. Uh, But action on those measures isn't likely to come this year. So we could be waiting on this. So Representative Stubbs knows this issue all too well. What was her experience with profiling by proxy? Yes, she does. And she's spoken publicly about it. So back in August 2018, she was in her district on the west side going door to door canvassing for her current seat in the assembly. Uh, She had her eight-year-old daughter and her 71-year-old mother in the car waiting for her. And someone called the police to report a suspicious vehicle, saying the vehicle was waiting for drugs at a nearby drug house. Stubbs had you know, been uh, conducting a, a visible campaign. She'd been a county supervisor for 12 years at the time. And she tried to show the officer who came to speak to her, her campaign literature, her voter outreach list. But it wasn't until she showed her driver's license that the officer finally let her go. And, you know, already at that time, kind of the harm was done. So at the unveiling of the bill, Representative Stubbs talked about just how traumatic it was. And emphasize that people of color are allowed to be in any neighborhood they want without somebody calling the police on them. It's a traumatic, extremely traumatic experience. And I'll go a step further. My eight-year-old daughter was involved with the situation. And now I am building that, that relationship with law enforcement because what I've always told her, it's not what we experience. To stand there and have law enforcement not believe her mom and not believe her grandma Who did she believe? A caller? Residents of one Madison neighborhood are taking this issue into their own hands. Tell us what's happening in the Dudgeon Monroe neighborhood. Yeah, this was really interesting to me. So like I said, this is sort of a sticky issue because it's probably not something police can solve on their own. A lot of it's about how we as community members choose to use the police. Um, We hear these messages like see something, say something and warnings about stranger danger. We don't get a lot of guidance about how to decide what's actually suspicious um, and how to factor in our own biases. So I was really interested in whether anyone was taking this on um, and kind of trying to do this training in their own neighborhoods. 
Um, so I posted on a Facebook group asking if anyone knew about something like this. And that's how I met Julie Whitaker. Uh, Julie had been worried about folks in her neighborhood listserv posting about suspicious people or suspicious activity and encouraging each other to call the police. And then the Monona incident happened and she realized kind of what could go wrong. So she posted a word of caution to her neighbors on the listserv and several people wrote back in agreement with her. Together, they formed an anti-racism committee within their neighborhood association. And one of their very first steps was to make a guide to calling 911, uh, which they just last week sent out uh, with their community newsletter. The guide offers alternative phone numbers that people can call in situations like mental health crises and homelessness instead of calling the police. And it encourages residents to ask themselves some questions before calling 911, like one of them is, Is there an immediate threat to life or safety, or is this only an inconvenience? And the guide says to call 911 only when there's a clear, immediate threat to the life and safety of yourself or others. So they sent this out last week, and now they're going to be talking through the guide with their neighbors at a community dialogue next Tuesday. So what will you be watching for next on this topic? So, one, I'll be curious to hear how things go at that community meeting this next Tuesday. And I'll also be watching for action at the state level, you know, not expecting it anytime soon. But when the Republican-controlled legislature didn't take up those um, nine policing measures that uh, Governor Evers put forward earlier this summer, they announced they would instead form a task force to look at issues like racial disparities in policing. And they just announced last week that Representative Sheila Stubbs would co-chair that committee. So since profiling by proxy is clearly an important issue for her, I'll be watching to see if the task force, you know, makes this part of any proposals. I'm also going to be watching kind of on a national level to see to what extent, you know, this issue, this question of how community members call on the police makes it into the discussions about changes to policing. You know, we know changing the public's behavior can be potentially more complicated than changing police behavior. But on the other hand, there can be so many barriers to changing policing policy. I'll be curious to see whether activists and other concerned folks will choose this as a way to make a very local change, especially since it's often about how white people behave. And in recent months, we've been seeing more white folks trying to get involved in the Black Lives Matter movement and wanting to call themselves allies. So I'll be interested to see what steps they take within their own communities. Is there anything else that you'd like to add on on this story that you reported? Yeah, I guess just one of the things that stuck with me and made me want to pursue this story at the very beginning was when I was reading about the Monona incident in Madison 365. And one of the things that caught my attention in that story was that at the very same time that a neighbor was seeing Keontae on the porch and calling the police, Keontae was on the phone chatting with a friend about, among other things, how nice the new neighborhood was and how he was looking forward to like going out and walking or running around the neighborhood. And after this incident, he told Madison 365 he wasn't sure whether he'd be staying any longer there in Monona. So to me, that just goes to show what the stakes are in this issue, that not only can police encounters sometimes lead to serious injury or death, But even when they don't, they can affect who feels comfortable where and kind of the dignity of a given person. Well, Natalie, thank you so much for sharing all about your story. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much, Abby. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Natalie, my favorite Madsplainers co-host. Tune in next week for a conversation about the Cap Times next cover story. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to the Madsplainers on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you do your listening. And don't forget to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our other podcasts, including The Corner Table, which is all about food and drink in Madison, and Wedge Issues, which is all about state politics. Until next time, thanks for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.